Well, welcome to you all. Welcome to this afternoon's uh, lecture. Remarkable, a Saturday afternoon lecture at the London School of Economics. And it's packed. And it's packed for one reason and one reason only that many of us, and many of us indeed, read Danny Roderick. <laughs> and uh, this is a testimony to how well you're received here in the UK and particularly at the London School of Economics. The lecture which Danny will give is on the theme of the future of economic convergence, and I needn't tell you that this is obviously a critical debating issue of our time. I won't say much about Danny Roderick. You're here because you know him. Just to remind you, of course, that he's Professor of International Political Economy at the Kennedy School of Harvard. I was going to list many of his articles and books, but you seem like an audience who will have read him. So just, I will say that his latest book is The Globalization Paradox, which has been extremely well received and widely reviewed. The book is on sale, as you've probably noticed, outside. And at the very end of this lecture, at 3.30, if you want to buy a copy, if you have a copy already, and then come around the lecture theater and the queue here, Danny will sign it for you. Um, I will skip then a long formal introduction. I was thinking about Danny and I was walking over here and I think, what would I really want to say about him on a more informal basis? And a little line from a Tina Turner song sprung into my head. You probably know which it is when she sang he, simply the best, better than all the rest. And I don't think she had, I don't think she had Danny probably in mind when she wrote that. <laughs> But as, an international, as far as international political economy goes, I think it's definitely apt. So please join with me in giving him a very warm welcome. I, I was hoping my relationship with Tina Turner would never become public, but you can, <laughs> can never... Uh, um, Thank you very much, uh, David. Uh, this is, as usual, it's great to be um, at LSC and, and wonderful to, um, uh, to meet up with uh, my old friend, uh, David Held. Um, the, the topic today is the, um, uh, is the future of, of economic convergence. Um, uh, since, of course, we don't know what the future is going to be, I'm going to end up talking a lot about the past. Uh, that's really the only way we have of, of uh, being able to say anything intelligent uh, about, the, about the future. Um, so I'll tell you uh, quite a bit about the past and, and try to and, and sort of filter the past um, through, through the kind of academic and, and analytical lens um, that, uh, that I think we ought to carry. Um, the immediate motivation uh, for uh, this work is, is the general sense that, um, uh, that there's something fundamental happening in the world economy, um, that the center of gravity of the world is moving east, um, which uh, is absolutely right and with which I have no, no disagreement. Um, but that uh, as, as um, in addition to that, um, that we're moving into a period uh, where um, a, the developing countries and the emerging parts of the world economy are going to be uh, continuing to grow uh, extremely rapidly, closing uh, the gap between the income levels that prevail in the rich countries and them, um, and, um, and, and that this is going to be uh, a, 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 a world economy that will retain its dynamism because even though the United States and Europe for uh, related but somewhat different reasons 
are going to remain mired in their own uh, problems with debt and financial crisis and so forth, uh, that the world economy is going to be pulled together, pulled uh, um, uh, uh, rapidly by the locomotive of uh, China and India and Brazil and, and the other uh, middle-income and developing countries. And of course, your perspective on that you know, will differ depending on whether you think uh, this is a good thing or a bad thing and, and uh, uh, in terms of, of uh, the you know, countries like China becoming a much more um, important parts of the world economy, becoming leaders and, and so forth. Uh, what I, I want to present here is, is a somewhat um, more uh, pessimistic or, uh, if you will, uh, realistic picture of uh, what the uh, future is likely to hold uh, with respect to um, rapid economic growth. And this perspective is, is as I indicated, is very heavily uh, colored by my reading of uh, the historical experience with respect to economic growth and what we learn from that. Um, and that, uh, that experience, if I were to sort of summarize the key point of my talk, would be that, that, that basically the kinds of um, transformative policies that are required for rapid economic convergence uh, tend to be rather difficult policies which a uh, few countries have consistently uh, managed to, uh, to achieve. I'll tell you a little bit more about what I mean by that um, and that I don't see any fundamental reason why uh, the central difficulty of these policies are going to disappear uh, as we go forward. And, and the second element is that um, these, the, the conduct of these policies, uh, even when it is uh, feasible on the part of the uh, developing countries themselves, um, has usually required a um, a permissive or benign global environment uh, where um, the largest economies in the world um, tend to sort of um, look the other way um, as uh, the converging countries uh, essentially follow um, heterodox or unorthodox policies that often inc include combinations of, uh, of uh, industrial policies, undervalued currencies, uh, various other interventions, um, which might be perceived to harm uh, specific industries, specific economic interests in the, in, the, in the richer parts of the world. And I think uh, we're moving into a, a kind of a phase of the world economy where I think it's no longer to be going to be the case uh, for the United States or U Europe to really sort of uh, you know, look the other way um, uh, when China and India and to the extent that other countries are actually successful imitating those kinds of policies uh, follow uh, these uh, unorthodox, uh, unorthodox um, uh, measures. Um, so, um, the, as I said, I mean, the, 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 the ground for optimism um, that there is going to be very rapid economic convergence uh, that's going to be widespread uh, is based really on uh, sort of a, a, the experience of the last decade, uh, because the last decade uh, was one uh, where uh, the world economy uh, as a whole grew quite rapidly. Um, and here what I have is, is the average growth rate of the world economy, sort of uh, taking out the yearly uh, you know, fluctuations uh, from year to year. And which if you average that out, what you're going to see is a somewhat like a, a U-shaped relationship um, that uh, by um, you know, the, the onset of the last financial crisis in 2008, 2009, uh, that the world economy was actually averaging a growth rate um, that, uh, that had surpassed 
the growth rate that it had in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War when uh, Reconstruction uh, essentially pro had provided an easy boost to economic growth at the time. Um, but this aggregate performance for the world as a whole um, actually hides uh, two rather uh, disparate uh, trends, one for the rich countries of the world and another one for the uh, developing countries. Um, and that if you look at the, um, the, the rich countries of the world, uh, that's sort of the, the steadily declining line. So the, for the advanced countries of the world, growth rates have actually been declining since about the early 1960s. Um, so uh, so the, the pickup in world growth is really explained uh, by the increase in uh, the performance of the developing countries, which is really nothing short of um, extraordinary. That starting, starting sometime in the mid-1980s, the developing countries began to grow much more rapidly. Their growth rate uh, in recent years has been significantly higher than anything that has been achieved until now. Um, and remarkably, the differential the differential in terms of the average growth rate in the developing parts of the world and the, and the rich parts of the world had now opened up to about four percentage points, uh, a four percentage point gap uh, in, 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 the, uh, in growth rate. So it's really this performance, uh, which is uh, this performance in, in, in recent years that is um, um, that is driving uh, this, this optimism that there is something maybe fundamental about uh, ongoing convergence. The other aspect of this uh, quite remarkable developing country performance recently is that it's no longer just China and a few Asian countries. Um, so that um, you know, if we disaggregate that uh, sort of steadily upward rising line between Asia, um, uh, Latin America, and Africa, uh, sure, it is still correct, it's still true that the Asian countries have been doing much better than the rest of the world, and in fact Asia has been steadily, steadily converging uh, with the rest of the world since about the late 1970s. And of course, a big part of this is, absolutely, is, is of course China, uh, both China's rapid growth and China becoming a much bigger part, much uh, bigger uh, share of Asia as a whole as, as its economy has grown. But look at what has happened also in Latin America and Africa. In fact, uh, African economic growth in both regions, both Latin America and, and Africa, uh, since um, the mid to late 1990s, growth rates have picked up. Uh, Africa actually has been growing more rapidly than Latin America uh, recently, but even Latin America uh, you know, sort of experienced growth rates that were now sort of commensurate, and in fact, perhaps a little bit higher than the kinds of growth rates it was experiencing in the uh, rather high growth uh, decades of 50 through 1980. Um, so uh, rapid growth and also one uh, that was um, widely shared among different parts of the world. Again, sort of adding or contributing uh, to this sense that, um, that, that we ought to be optimistic about ongoing sustained rapid convergence. Um, and there's, there's more uh, if you wanted to sort of uh, paint a, an optimistic picture. Um, and uh, that is with respect to what economists call um, the convergence gap. Uh, the convergence gap is the difference uh, in the income levels of the poor and the rich countries. And it's important from uh, an economic standpoint because it's a measure of uh, the potential for catch-up. 
Because after all, developing countries don't necessarily have to develop all the technologies that exist. If they're off the shelf, it's just a matter of importing that technology and adapting it. Um, so the, the productivity of the rich countries is something that represents the frontier to which they ought to be able to converge. And the further away they are from that frontier, in some sense, the easier it is or ought to be for catch-up, because there are all these technologies that they ought to be able to simply absorb uh, without having to invent new things, uh, developing new technologies themselves. So from that perspective, the bigger the uh, convergence gap, uh, the more the potential for rapid growth, um, the more the potential for catch-up. And as you can see, even though in the uh, last um, is this not working, or am I not seeing it? It's sort of working. But. So you can see developing countries as a whole have, have converged a little bit uh, over the last decade or so. Uh, but because there is a steadily increasing gap between their level of income and that of rich countries um, uh, over the previous decades, uh, that the convergence gap between the rich countries and the poor countries today is still as high as it has ever been um, you know, um, since the, uh, the 1950s. So it, that's another reason really for, for uh, optimism on, on the part of catch-up. Now, um, so what's the likelihood uh, that this trend uh, can continue? Um, if we look at the, the period that's covered uh, in, this, uh, in this chart since about 1950, um, in sort of broad historical scale, one of the interesting things about this period is um, how rapidly countries that, have been able, that, were, that were doing things the right way have managed to grow. Um, and let me make that point um, clear uh, with another chart. And this sort of now actually you know, goes really a very long way back uh, to the year 2000. Um, um, this is Angus Madison's data, um, and uh, obviously to be taken with, with, with a lot of uh, grain of salt. Uh, but what I've done here is basically divide up uh, this uh, sort of uh, thousand year period um, to different time uh, uh, sub-periods. And for each period, I've asked two questions. Uh, one represented by the blue bar is how high was GDP per capita, I'm sorry, the, the red bar is how high was GDP per capita in the world growing at, in the world as a whole. And the second was how well was the growth champion doing in that period? In other words, in, every, in each one of these sub-periods, look for the country or the region that was growing the most rapidly and ask what was their growth rate, okay? So when you do that, if you just look at the red bars, um, sort of, you know, we know that the sort of growth rates have tended to rise over time. Okay? But that's really not the important thing that, that stands out here. The important thing that stands out here is the, you know, these blue bars since about 1950. That since about 1950, if you were doing the right things, you were able to grow incredibly rapidly. You were, grow, you were able to converge at a much, uh, uh, at a truly very rapid rate uh, compared to what the growth champions in earlier periods had experienced. Okay? So one of the questions we'll want to ask is, what was special after 1950? What was it that you know, allowed countries that were doing the right things uh, to grow uh, so, so rapidly? Uh, because 
even though sort of the growth potential, as represented by the size of these blue bars, that there were countries that were actually doing very rapidly, that were doing very well. Of course, these three countries are Japan in the first sub-period, South Korea in the second sub-period, and China in that, in that last sub-period, sort of these three Asian countries that in successive phases of the post-1950 world economy um, have, have done extremely well. Um, it was the case that, that not many countries could actually emulate that performance. Um, so uh, if you look at how many countries over history have managed to experience very rapid, sustained convergence, okay, the list is actually so uh, small that I can fit them all on just one slide. Uh, so this is the number of countries uh, that have ever managed to grow at a rate of 4.5% per annum or more over a period of at least three decades. 4.5% okay? per year or more at a rate of uh, for at least three decades. Well, it turns out that before 1990, there were only two such countries, Australia and New Zealand. Okay? Uh, between in the first half of the 20th century, there was only one country, Venezuela. Now, since 1950, uh, it's been a somewhat longer list of countries, um, and uh, these three these this list in 1950 essentially you can you know sort of divide them into three subcategories. One is essentially a few countries in the immediate periphery um, of Western Europe. Uh, which managed to converge very rapidly to the rich countries, largely in the early parts of uh, the post-Second World War period, during the 1950s. So there was a wave of convergence restricted to the European periphery uh, in the uh, immediate aftermath of the Second World War. Uh, second, there's a bunch of oil or natural resource-rich countries, oil countries and, and other natural resource countries, and the rest, countries that are sort of we're familiar with as very rapid growing countries, the rest are just a, you know, a, a bunch of, of, of East Asian or, or, or Southeast Asian countries that have done well. Um, so uh, this experience then um, sort of you know, raises, you know, raises the question of, of you know, what is it that uh, you know, the successful countries that we know, when, you know, if, you know if, if they get things right, managed to converge extremely rapidly in, in really remarkable rates, uh, yet somehow um, the, uh, the, uh, you know, the experience uh, you know, isn't widely enough shared or sort of limited to a relatively narrow range of countries. Now, we've had sort of successive waves of uh, optimism with respect to whether we have the recipe for growth or not. Um, every 10, 15 years, we have a new big idea that says this is what you need to do to get economic growth. Uh, and and most, you know, most of the time, uh, you know, we have been disappointed uh, in terms of, of how uh, that recipe has, has proved um, uh, inadequate. Um, of course, the last big such recipe was you know, sort of the, the Washington consensus in its various uh, uh, variants. Um, and, uh, and, and, and the paradox that came out of the Washington consensus uh, was that, uh, that you know, the countries that more or less adopted it uh, you know, failed to deliver 
uh, the performance that was expected. I, um, here I show you just two examples of countries, uh, Latin American countries, Brazil and Mexico, uh, which are often uh, listed as countries that um, you know, have done a whole lot of economic reform in a conventional uh, sense of the term and have uh, their, these economies have reduced their trade barriers, they've opened themselves up to capital flows, they've significantly liberalized domestic markets, uh, they follow macroeconomic policies and fiscal and monetary policies that are conducive to price stability and, and debt sustainability. Um, you know, they've removed many of the um, uh, interventions in, in, in markets for goods and services that they used to have. They've dismantled their import substitution policies by and large. Um, they have financialized their liberal, uh, they, they liberalized their financial system. And yet the paradox is, is that these countries uh, in their, uh, you know, in the post-1980 or post-even 2000 period, right, which is, was the best highest growth period since the 50s, were still growing much less rapidly than they had done in the sort of in the period of their bad old policies of import substitution and protectionism and infant industry promotion and so forth. Uh, so there's a sense very much that, that our recipes, um, sort of what we told these countries that they ought to do, um, haven't, haven't quite delivered. So um, let me just summarize you know, these sort of disparate uh, bits and pieces of, of evidence that, uh, uh, that I've presented you from various historical eras. Uh, you know, by way of four questions, um, and my attempt at answering those four questions. Um, first question is, uh, why is it that um, convergence, um, um, when it has taken place, has been much more rapid than before. So this goes to the, the, the contrast between the post-1950 experience to um, sort of the experience um, before. Why is it, what was different about the nature of the converging countries um, uh, in the post-1950 period that allowed them to grow so much more rapidly? Second, um, why has it been so rare? Uh, why is it that so few countries have managed to converge? Third, uh, what is special about countries that have managed rapid and sustained convergence? What is it that they actually did do? So what's my answer, uh, if you will, uh, to um, uh, the, con the Washington consensus? And, and, and ultimately, of course, what does all this imply uh, about the future of convergence? Um, so let me just you know, go through quickly sort of what my responses to each one of these questions uh, um, uh, are. First, uh, I think the answer to the first question uh, is that the growth process in the very rapidly converging countries after the 1950 was fundamentally different than the growth process experienced by growth champions in earlier periods. If you go back to that table I showed you, what was special about Australia, New Zealand, Venezuela, or you know, some of the other countries that may have grown rep uh, uh, rapidly in the pre-1950 period was that they were all basically based on natural resources, on primary products, on commodity booms, or on expanding, uh, making use of a, uh, a, a underutilized land frontier. So it was very much based on utilizing primary and natural resources. 
and they benefited to the extent that they had these commodity booms, uh, discoveries, or ability to put, in, uh, to put into use through the immigration of labor um, a, an unexploited, unexplored land frontiers. Um, what was special about the countries after 1950, think of Japan, South Korea, China, right? What's special about that was that these weren't countries, were in fact countries that are relatively poor in natural resources and primary products, and that their growth pattern was actually based on diversifying away uh, from primary products and, and, and agriculture, uh, in particular towards industry and manufacturers. So the, I associate, for reasons that I'll say a little bit more uh, in a couple of minutes, this um, ability to converge extremely rapidly that we, saw, we see in a number of countries after 1950 with the special role of industrialization and manufacturing. Uh, that, that is what historically has really given us uh, rapid convergence, not specialization in primary products and manufacturers. Uh, second, why has convergence been so rare? Um, if it doesn't rely on you know, special endowments of uh, primary products, uh, why has it been so rare? It's rare because this process, which I'm describing to you as the fundamental driver of economic convergence, of economic diversification, industrialization, moving into uh, new, mostly manufactured product, uh, that this process is one that doesn't happen on its own. There is nothing automatic about this process. Or to put it in words that, um, you know, from an economics textbook, that this process is full of market and government failures. Okay? And because there are all these market and government failures, uh, um, this is not an automatic process. And it's actually hard to overcome these market and government failures. Again, I'll say a little bit more about that, uh, what I mean by that. Um, so the, the, the fundamental obstacle is that there are obstacles. Uh, and the obstacles are the obstacles, whether innate to markets or due to governmental or institutional failures that delay, slow down, um, uh, and, 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 and prevent uh, rapid uh, structural transformation towards non-traditional product. So from that context, uh, looked at it that way, what turns out to be special about countries that have managed rapid and sustained convergence um, is actually a little bit subtle. Uh, it is not that these countries are the ones that managed directly to overcome these market and uh, uh, institutional uh, failures in the sense of basically eliminating them it's actually countries that have managed to deploy what I call shortcuts. Shortcuts that compensate for market and government failures. Okay? Because it turns out that as difficult it is to come up with these shortcuts and compensations, removing the original market and uh, government failures is many times orders of magnitude more difficult. Because these market and government failures are things like, well, you know, your legal regime doesn't work well, your courts don't enforce contracts, your you know, governments uh, aren't sufficiently clean and transparent and, and, and honest, um, and markets are subject to, uh, to spillovers and coordination externalities. If we were to think about how you're going to remove those things, you know, then you get into a kind of discussion that eventually 
delivers you a list of reforms that basically tell you that the only way to become rich is to become rich. Because effectively, the list says, well, um, improve institutions uh, and internalize all market failures. Well, what does that mean? You need to have not only you know, rich country set of institutions in terms of quality of government and the quality of the judiciary and the quality of governance. You also have to have all the appropriate regulatory institutions that are going to internalize all these market failures. Well, if you have the ability to have all those institutions, you're already rich. You don't have to worry. You're already, you're already there. Um, to, so to say that, that you know, in order to become rich, you need to have, you need to sort of fix all these government and market failures is sort of like saying, you know, uh, to become Switzerland, uh, you have to become Switzerland. Um, and, and so what I'm saying here uh, is, is that, you know, um, what countries actually have done and the successful, rapidly doing, going countries have done is actually uh, haven't, they, they haven't succeeded because they were able to fundamentally eliminate these government market failures. That instead, they follow shortcuts that compensated for the cost of these failures. And I'll uh, mean uh, what I mean by that. But essentially what I mean is if you're you know, a manufacturing producer or an entrepreneur or an investor, that you are effectively taxed by the weakness of the institutional environment and by the weakness of market relations. Well. One way I can compensate you is simply by giving you a subsidy, a handout. Right? That doesn't eliminate the market failure or the government failure, but it certainly makes you feel happier and much more likely to invest and hire. Okay? And remarkably, what successful countries have done is effectively do something like that. Right? Not worry about sort of necessarily uh, removing these very difficult uh, to remove failures, but compensate them uh, in the form of protection, in the form of, of subsidies, in the forms of, of changing relative prices uh, in the direction of these modern manufactured industries. So it's a way of compensating. In a way, it's, a, it's a, again, in, stand, in, 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 in uh, textbook terms, uh, it's a second best policy. You're introducing some additional distortions uh, because the first set of distortions are irremovable. But the second set of distortions might actually make you better off in the presence of the irremovable initial set. Um, I'll say a little bit more about that in a second. Um, and what does all that imply about the future of convergence? Um, the, the, it implies what I started out with, which is that, um, that, uh, that we haven't overcome the development challenge. And we're going to be facing the same kind of problems we faced uh, earlier, uh, both because these shortcuts, uh, about which I'll say a little bit more in, 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 in a second, uh, are in themselves hard to adopt and implement. And also because, as I said at the outset, uh, you know, the moment I tell you that the way to grow is to effectively subsidize your modern industries, you can ima easily see the kind of potential problems that's going to force, in a, uh, that's going to uh, generate in an integrated world economy for uh, your countries that are essentially um, your, your export markets. Uh, this hasn't been a problem for Japan and for South Korea and until very recently for China, largely because developed countries were having a good time. So the attitude of the United States to China until very recently was one of benign neglect. Now, they want to subsidize their exports to us, fine, wonderful. Um, we welcome that because it means all these goods that the American middle class and poor people consume in Walmart are that much cheaper. 
um, and that's a wonderful thing. You know, so if they want to, uh, you know, subsidize their producers uh, so as to subsidize our consumption here, that's fine. But that logic works well when a country like the United States is in relatively full capacity, full employment. Um, but when you get to be 9%, 10% unemployment and you worry about excess capacity unemployment, um, you know, sort of things start to look a little bit uh, differently. And we have to sort of in, in, interpret uh, the growing opposition to China's currency policies, now increasingly India uh, being mentioned as an abuser of world trade policies and subsidizing various industries, all in that kind of a context. And I think we're moving into a phase of the world economy uh, where conflict of that sort is going to become more and more um, frequent. Okay, uh, so I said key is productive diversification and, and uh, um, uh, uh, expanding industry and manufacturing in particular. I just want to spend a minute or two on, on why manufacturing is special. Okay? Um, now, uh, before you try to understand what this scatter plot says, let me once again step back and uh, remind you about the convergence gap. Now, according to sort of you know the standard story, as I said, you know in principle, the bigger the convergence gap, the further you away you are from the frontier, the easier it ought to be for you to grow. So, if that were true, countries that were the poorest would tend to experience the most rapid gains in productivity, most rapid growth. Now, we know from already from the kind of data that I've shown you that that is not true in general. That, in fact, for much of the post-war period, most countries, most poor countries have grown less rapidly uh, than the rich countries. Okay? So we know that this convergence gap, which is a hypothetical growth driver, hypothetical potential for growth, doesn't operate, that there are other things that need to come into play. But here's where manufacturing is special. It turns out that if you get into formal manufacturing activities, then the convergence gap unambiguously and unconditionally works to your benefit. That is, once you get into manufacturing, whether it's textiles, and um, so let me show you actually a few pitch pictures for four different industries across, four dif or across a bunch of countries, footwear, plastic products, glass and glass products, and furniture. And I could have shown you a very similar looking picture for at least 100 other industries, manufacturing industries. Now, what each one of these is showing is the relationship between the initial level of productivity with which a country started out these industries and, on the vertical axis, the growth rate of productivity in that industry that they experienced. So the fact that there is a negative slope here indicates that the further away they were from the productivity frontier in each one of these industries, the more rapidly productivity grew. So there was no convergence for economies as a whole, but in each specific manufacturing industry, there was actually very rapid, unconditional convergence. If you get a toehold, if you get a toehold in these manufacturing industries, you're on the automatic escalator up. Okay, um, this is true for these four specific industries that I told you. It's actually true uh, across very, very wide range countries, of, of countries and industries. So these scatter plots are simply a generalization of those. 
uh, and you can see that, um, that, that uh, unconditionally there's a very strong relationship between how far you're away from the frontier and how rapidly you're going to grow. Now that's wonderful news. It means basically, if you take these pictures literally, it doesn't matter if you're in a country where the government is corrupt, where tax rates are high, where you know, you're landlocked, right? If you manage to start these industries, you will eventually converge, or at least you'll, 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 you'll grow very rapidly. Okay? So the trick is to get these industries going, and then you're, you're, on, the, you're on the escalator. Um, and the difference between countries that are growing rapidly and those that, are, that aren't is precisely the difference between countries that are able to move their resources uh, into these higher productivity or higher convergence industries or the automatic escalator industries and those that aren't. So let me give you an example of each. This is a good case. This is Thailand. We don't think of Thailand as, as you know, one of the most rapidly growing countries, but it's grown fairly rapidly. It's, it's, it's typical of the kind of Asian success story. And what has happened in Thailand in the last two decades or so? What has happened, very loosely, is that Thailand has taken a whole bunch of farmers out of agriculture. So here is the agricultural sector. And the agricultural share of employment has come down by 20%, a fifth of the total workforce in Thailand over a period of 15 years. Okay? Now, agriculture, so what I have on the, on the vertical axis is the relative productivity of each one of these sectors. And agriculture, of course, is all the way at the very bottom. It's the least productive. That's where you are the least productive. You've taken these workers that were on the farm, and now they've all moved into the urban areas, into a whole bunch of activities, including manufacturing, where productivity is much higher. The process of industrialization, the process of urbanization, is basically this. And this is the standard story. If, you know, if you, you, you know, so you're doing development economics, Okay, that's sort of like the first two classes in development economics, the standard dual economy model. Arthur Lewis and all of that says, this is what happens in development. You move people from low productivity traditional products to high productivity modern products such as industry. But the, the trouble is, in the real world, this is an exception rather than the rule. And let me show you a particularly bad case, Argentina. Um, look at Argentina, which is the sector that has lost the biggest amount of employment over the same period. It's actually manufacturing. Argentina, as so many other uh, Latin American countries, has actually experienced deindustrialization in this process. Um, and therefore, resources have actually moved from high productivity activities to low productivity activities. In particular, that big circle over there is a whole bunch of services where informal economic activity, petty services, low productivity activities are located. So that's a wonderful kind of structural change. You take people out of you know, uh, formal industry, formal employment and manufacturing, you get them, you put them into informality. Okay? And even though manufacturing has increased its productivity over this period, in fact quite rapidly, all of that increase in manufacturing productivity has been offset by this adverse form of structural change, of moving people from high to low productivity activities. And this is not just a contrast between Thailand and Argentina, it's a general contrast between uh, Asia on the one hand, 
and Latin America and Africa on the other. So uh, I've decomposed these various, the last, um, and then I, sort of high income countries there. Uh, so I've, I've decomposed each of these regions' growth rate into a component that I call structural, that's the component that I'm particularly interested in, which is how much of the growth has come from structural change, from people moving from low to high productivity sectors. And then the part that's called within is simply what's happening in productivity within individual sectors. The big difference between Asia on the one hand and Latin America and Africa isn't the within component, although the within component is still larger in Asia. The big difference is that Asia is experiencing still positive structural change, whereas Latin America and Africa have, on average, experienced negative structural change. Okay. Not only is it that the most productive parts of the economy haven't been absorbing a lot of employment, um, uh, they've actually lost their em employment shares as a result of um, uh, uh, deindustrialization. And also in the case of Africa, by the way, um, a lot of the privatization of parastatals and state enterprises, which was the, the point of the um, Washington Consensus, you know, get rid of excess employment in these parastatals. Well, it made sense from a narrow standpoint, which is that if you, you know, take these workers from parastatals or state enterprises and put them into export-oriented industries, you've increased productivity in the economy. But what happens if you take these people in parastatals or state enterprises and they end up either unemployed or they end up in petty services where their productivity is even lower or they end up going back to the farm, doing traditional farming where their productivity is once again lower. Now you've actually ended up lowering overall productivity in the economy, not expanding it. So it turns out that many of these industries or state-owned enterprises which we were complaining about because there's, they're inefficient, they were inefficient compared to the most productive activities in these economies, but were more efficient than a whole bunch of other activities in the same economies, including traditional agriculture and informality. And we assumed that they would, the, the, the movement of labor would go from this sort of set of activities of intermediate efficiency to the more efficient ones. Instead, it happened to go the other way around. So in other words, this process, which is this key process of transformation of productive diverse, diversification, uh, uh, ends up taking place working either very slowly or perversely in the countries that aren't growing rapidly or that aren't converging. Okay? So then the, 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 the question is, so what's the difference? What does it take to move resources in the right direction? Okay? Um, I mentioned these before, so you know, there's two big umbrella categories. One is poor institutions. So if you know, industries aren't expanding. It's because you have corrupt governments that you know, tax you a much, they don't provide adequate property rights uh, protection, don't enforce contracts, and so forth. Right? So what that means is that you know, you're going to you know, try to uh, escape from the, uh, effectively the high tax that poor institutions place on you if you operate in the formal modern parts of the economy. After all, if you're a barber, right, you can just set up a stool in a street corner and have a few tools, and you can earn 
living in the informal sector and you don't have to interact with any of the formal institutions of the state in any way. Okay? So you can protect yourselves from the weakness of institutions. But suppose you wanted to set up a garment factory. Now you need to sort of import the yarn, so you'll have to deal with the, um, with the, uh, um, uh, uh, the government officers at customs. Uh, there'll be you know, inspectors coming in, check what kind of factory you're operating. You'll have to bribe them. You know, if you have a problem with your suppliers, you may have to go to the court system, uh, and which may not be you know, efficient or, or may not enforce the contracts. And the government always stands in the ready uh, to tax all your profits away if you turn out to be uh, very profitable. So basically, the weakness of the institutions are imposing an excessive cost, an extra cost, uh, an extra tax, if you're operating in the modern parts of the economy than if you're operating in traditional agriculture or in, in, uh, uh, in, in petty services. Uh, but of course, the way that I've described you these problems, you know, it's going to take a long time to fix. The second um, umbrella category are these market failures. Uh, and these market failures come in, in two forms, largely. One is sort of learning spillovers. The other is coordination failures. Uh, learning failures, you know, uh, I think they're very different forms. But one way to think about it is, is that when you're operating in an economy where you, know, uh, you don't have um, a um, um, uh, you know, any idea whether a particular new investment is going to be profitable or not, um, then, uh, you know, the initial investors that show that something can come off the ground uh, provides huge amount of, of demonstration effect and learning benefits. Uh, so if, you know, you don't, if you, you, if you have, if you have pineapple farming but no pineapple cannery, uh, the first investor in the pineapple cannery uh, will provide very valuable information to whether this can be done profitably or not. And of course, you know, that risk and that in investment, the cost of that don't, doesn't have to be borne by, by, by copycats or, or followers. Uh, so there are huge benefits to being a first, but also you know, huge benefits to society from people going into new industries. Uh, but uh, those social benefits uh, cannot be expropriated um, by private investors, which means that the private incentives to diversify will generally be low. Uh, from the perspective because of these spillovers. Uh, the second has to do with sort of coordination failures. That's sort of that to get new industries off the ground, you need simultaneously the establishment of complementary economic activities, uh, either upstream or downstream. So if you're going to be you know, providing the, you know, if you're going to be operating the first pineapple cannery in the country, um, and then you have to worry about whether it's going to be sort of the, the transport and logistic network to get the cans, the pineapple cans, into the airport, into your, your markets. Uh, but if there is no, uh, you know, large-scale pineapple cannery industry uh, operating in the first place, nobody has an incentive to invest in those transport and logistic networks in the first place. Um, and because of that, then you, an otherwise profitable industry might, might fail to, um, to, um, uh, to operate. So the, the implication of this is, is that basically even when you get sort of, you know, in the impossible case when you're getting sort of the institutions right, you're fixing the government failures, there are inherent reasons why markets may not provide adequate um, uh, signals to investors and entrepreneurs for diversific diversification and getting these, these industries off the ground. So what has worked in practice, as I indicated before, uh, is a bunch of, of, of shortcuts that, that operate against the background of 
you know, overall macroeconomic stability and pro-market orientation. So I don't want to sort of, you know, de-emphasize that aspect. So obviously, you know, if you are in an economy where the government is intent on struggling, on, on strangling economic activity, right, then no amount of shortcuts or compensation will work. Uh, but if you are in an economy where there's the broad framework of a government that is interested in generating economic growth and is providing the broad framework of macroeconomic stability, uh, then the kinds of things that have actually worked are, are, are these shortcuts um, that, that compensate for these failures. Again, uh, the idea is if these market and government imperfections impose a tax on these modern economic activities, these compensations take the form of various kinds of subsidies uh, that say, okay, I'm taking, I'm emptying one of your pockets, but I'm filling out the, uh, I'm filling in the other. And, and, and so uh, there's, of course, you know, you know, various forms of that are, of course, trade protection, the standard infant industry um, uh, promotion route, uh, which has been the way that many industries have gotten off the ground, um, uh, uh, directed credit and other industrial policies, and increasingly in recent decades, um, overvalued currencies. I'm sorry, undervalued currencies. Uh, because undervalued currencies is probably the most uh, efficacious way of promoting industry. Because what undervalued currency does is, is subsidize the production of your uh, tradables. Well, the tradables are, by and large, where most of these new modern industries are located. So if you're subsidizing your tradables, you're subsidizing effectively all these modern industries. And that's why um, there is a very strong relationship uh, between your currency policies, your industrialization, and overall economic growth. So uh, two scatter plots. Um, the first one sort of um, is already you know, what I've talked about, which is the relationship between industrialization and economic growth. So this shows that the larger the amount of, of uh, your, your, your employment, the higher the share of employment in, uh, in industry, the more rapidly you grow. Uh, but this, the second one also shows that there's a very definite relationship between your, uh, the competitiveness of your exchange rate and how rapidly you grow through the industrial employment channel. Uh, so that the more undervalued, the more competitive your currency is, um, the more of your people you get into industry, and therefore the more rapidly you grow. Uh, so this is actually, in the last couple of decades, has been one of the primary mechanisms through which uh, growth has been generated, uh, if you can have an undervalued currency. Um, you know, China is sort of the exemplar. Um, the country that actually best characterizes uh, sort of these, these general uh, ideas. Uh, because China's policies um, have, you can view China's sequence of reforms since the light, late 1970s as essentially one unconventional, heterodox way of compensating for the multitudes of uh, institutional and market weaknesses in that economy, of which, right, there is so many. Right? not even private property rights until recently. Right? Tremendously weak legal system. Um, uh, you know, until very recently, still a very highly protected uh, uh, economy. Uh, when you look at sort of each one of these um, um, uh, reforms that, that, that China has used, um, going back to the early reforms of the agricultural pricing system in the late 1970s, 
they've always been sort of, you know, indirect way, you know, politically more convenient ways of targeting particular kinds of constraints and removing them. Uh, so, you know, when the West would have told China that the way to remove agricultural price disincentives was to privatize land and undertake price reform, you know, move towards market pricing, you know, that would be sort of like, right, the way to get agricultural price incentives right is to give up on socialism. Yeah, right, we'll do it. Um, instead, of course, what they did it was through two-track pricing, which is to keep, of course, central planning and keep um, uh, 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 um, public ownership of land, but simply provide incentives to farmers at the margin to the two-track pricing system. So, same with sort of household responsibility system um, was a compensation and household responsibility system and the TVEs, town, township and village enterprises were effectively a way of compensating for poor protection of private property rights or in fact inexistent protection of private property rights in a very weak legal system. And of course the last of these things in the list, exchange rate protection under valuation of the Chinese currencies, what I've just talked about, is, is the, la the latest on the list because all their manufacturing industries which were heavily protected through the trade regime and their extensive industrial policies until around 2001, once China enters the World Trade Organization has to remove all of those things. But of course the Chinese government says, well just because we got into the WTO doesn't mean that we're not going to be subsidizing our tradables. But we'll subsidize them differently. We'll subsidize them now through the exchange rate over which there is no global discipline as opposed to trade and industrial policies over which there is. Now, that's why, of course, we're today discussing what to do about the, you know, the Americans are discussing what to do about the um, uh, China's undervaluation, which, uh, you know, is, is, is their current policy. Um, now, uh, you know, I don't mean, I don't want to imply that China is this sort of, you know, uh, paradise. Um, of, uh, of economic and, and political governance. And I think one of the problems with these uh, partial reforms, these compensations, is that uh, you know, a, a critic might say that you know, because you are not targeting these market and institutional weaknesses at their core, uh, you're building up an additional series of rigidities and, and, and heterodoxies that are going to ensure that you get stuck somewhere in between, that you won't be able to compete, complete that full cycle, that you'll never look like Western Europe and, and America, whatever that means. Okay? Um, so we don't know how it's going to end. Uh, my biggest worry, actually, for China is the, is the one about uh, the rule of law and democracy. So I think very few countries, in fact, only one so far, has managed to become rich um, uh, without sort of developing um, uh, democratic uh, forms of governance and political competition and full set of civil liberties. Um, and I think that, in, in some sense, is the biggest challenge that, that China still faces. It's not clear whether it will be able to overcome. Um, the problem with these shortcuts, and you know, China is a wonderful example, uh, but, you know, Again, going back to the fundamental question that, that very few countries have managed to, uh, to, to successfully implement, many of these policies have been tried in other cases. Right? Trade protection, industrial policy, there's very few countries that haven't done trade protection and industrial policy. If that was the, the, the key, uh, if that was uh, sufficient, I'm saying it's pretty much necessary, uh, but you know, it's not necessary. It's not sufficient. Then, um, then uh, you know, convergence would have been much more widespread. Uh, and you know, 
The problem, of course, is that the standard, standard arguments against industrial policy have a lot of truth to them, that uh, because of the problems of inadequate information, that the governments don't have enough information to know which kinds of industries to support, uh, and because of politics, which is that the moment you start intervening, you might be get subject to rent-seeking, corruption, so create more of these kinds of problems, that, that often these things haven't worked in practice. So, uh, you know, to say that these shortcuts and compensations have worked in practice and are easier than the full gamut of uh, you know, turning your institutions into those of Switzerland overnight is not necessarily to say that these compensations themselves are easy and the fact that so few countries have managed to pull them uh, suggests that they in themselves are actually hard to do. Okay? And as I once again emphasize, uh, the external dimension uh, here is important. Um, that, uh, that we are very likely not um, going to, um, to, uh, to find uh, as much going forward. So um, let me uh, just, uh, just conclude. Um, the fact that there is a very large convergence gap ensures that that significant potential, that countries that are doing the right things can grow extremely rapidly, I think that convergence potential is there. That's the good news. Um, the bad news is, that, well, you know, the, the other good news is that actually we have a sense of what are the pathways, what are the mechanisms uh, through which we get that kind of growth. That mechanism, that pathway is what I've called structural change, uh, ongoing process of diversification and structural change. The bad news is everything that, that we know sort of suggests that there are no easy uh, solutions here, that, there's, there, there, that the process is not automatic. Uh, especially in countries that somehow start with an initial advantage. Because if you have a lot of primary products, it's relatively easy to make a jump to certain kinds of, of, of levels of income. Uh, but uh, it's, it's much harder to, make, to, to get this uh, process of diversification going. And finally, um, that, uh, that, that the trick uh, in, the, in, in practice has been these series of pragmatic experimental policies that, that, that support new industries. Um, I've presented them as compensations for uh, existing uh, difficulties, and that's actually what makes them unconventional and heterodox. Um, and I think uh, we already have now plenty of signs that going forward, uh, if you are a middle-sized country, if you're a small African country, it's not going to constrain you if you're able to carry out these policies. So I think maybe you have a chance. But if you're a, a China, an India, a Brazil, Russia, Turkey, um, I think uh, these kinds of policies will be much more uh, sort of uh, challenged uh, either through the WTO or through the IMF or through uh, pressure brought on from the rich countries. So uh, that means that, 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 that the kind of sort of next phase of economic globalization will not necessarily be also as conducive uh, to the conduct of these policies as, as we observed in the last, last few decades. So good news, big convergence gap. We know what the mechanisms are. Bad news, uh, I think the external environment uh, will be not very permissive. Not because growth in the, developing, in the rich parts of the world are slow, but because of the indirects of that slow growth, which is that um, uh, relations between the rich and poor parts of the world are likely to turn much more, um, uh, 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 much more con um, problematic and controversial. Thank you.
Well, thank you, Danny, for that uh, tour de force. Um, you can't cram more of a detailed argument into an hour and five minutes than we have just had. I'm sure there are a lot of questions. I have a lot of questions. We don't have that much time, so let's take questions in clusters of five and uh, make Danny work even harder. So if you keep your questions really short, that would be good. Yes, gentlemen up there. You said, you said the key uh, for convergence is diversification to manufacturing and exports. Now, what about sub-Saharan Africa? Can they diversify into manu low-skilled manufacturing sector, given that A, they have a comparative advantage in primary sector, B, China has already dominated that sector, and C, the policy space is shrinking for sub-Saharan Africa? Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, gentlemen. Uh, my question is related with the question, what is special about the countries that managed to achieve a higher economic growth in long term? Um, can and should we include um, the extreme exploitation of labor power into the list, into the shortcut list? Because, I mean, when we look at the countries that achieved higher growth, such as East Asian countries, Brazil, India, I mean, those countries extremely exploited their labor power. Thank you. This lady, just there with her, two rows back. If you could just put your hand up. And, yeah, thank you. Um, <clears throat> hello, thank you very much for your lecture. Um, I have a similar question, actually, about how you assess the experience of uh, post-communist Eastern European countries. Uh, because they seem to, having many of them having joined the European Union, they seem to have sources, so to speak, the institutional problems uh, at some level, and yet their economic performance is quite variable. Uh, thank you. Which countries are you talking about? Uh, the countries of post-communist Eastern Europe. Okay, thank you. Yes, Lady Pat. Yeah, hi. Right. Questions coming right. Hi, I'm Maya Jolson. I went to Kennedy School actually a few years back. Um, so up here, um, if you can speak about India and India's transition, given that it's moving not to petty services but more, you know, like tradable services, and how you see India growing, uh, do you see their manufacturing growing, just in, in, in context of their institutions as well? And we'll just take question. Yes, next year, and then we'll come back in a moment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I would just like to know your opinion about the global implications of these shortcuts, because maybe subsidies, they may be good for one country's development, but what about the implication for other countries' producers of those subsidies? And another example would be the, the pollution implications of more, much more industrialization as a recipe for development. Okay, we've taken five questions, that's uh, probably enough, although I'd like to slip in one, and then we'll come back to you again in a moment. Just, uh, actually, there's two questions that I want to ask. On the arguments about convergence, to pick up the question about services, you hardly mention services in the argument at all. The UK economy is one of many, which is predominantly now a service economy. I wonder where that fits into the overall argument that you make. And the secondly, of course, what's distinctive about the current period is you know, a staggered global financial crisis, huge now indebtedness in many countries in the West, the Eurozone crisis, emerging global imbalances. And I wonder what these big structural issues will do to your argument, you know, in, let's say, looking over a, a, in just in the next four to five years, because we don't expect, actually, that the convergence to 
pick up more rapidly, Asia to, and other countries to start to grow more rapidly, the stagnation in the West to begin to uh, uh, have a very uh, serious sustained impact on growth. Okay, uh, lots of wonderful questions. Um, uh, what about uh, Sub-Saharan Africa? Um, I think there are reasons to be both optimistic and pessimistic about Sub-Saharan Africa, and I think for precisely uh, the issues that were, that were mentioned. One, Sub-Saharan Africa starts out with a, a real disadvantage in terms of uh, being relatively well endowed in, in natural resources and primary products and land rather than um, uh, and, and so, so plus um, having um, uh, sort of lots of foreign transfers and foreign aid. Um, and what that means is that they start out structurally with an exchange rate, with a real exchange rate uh, that is not very conducive to diversification and the production of manufacturers and industrial products. Um, so there is there's, there's a big, big uh, disadvantage um, coming from uh, from the exchange rate that, that they have to face. So number one is to what extent they can overcome that, uh, to what extent they can utilize um, uh, industrial policies which have these institutional requirements of a certain amount of capability on the part of the government to, to actually compensate for a tendency for an, an overvaluation of the real exchange rate. Um, on the China front, there clearly, to, to until very recently, that has been a big, um, uh, a, a big uh, uh, source of um, uh, lack of competitiveness. And, and I think China's uh, imp exports to many sub-Saharan African countries have wiped out, uh, have helped, at least, you know, has helped wiped out many incipient manufacturing industries in Africa. But I think going forward, there the news actually is relatively good. Uh, because China's costs are now uh, increasing, um, both because the uh, um, wages in China are increasing and also because um, there will almost certainly be greater pressure, as I've discussed, in terms of uh, the Chinese currency um, appreciating. So putting both of those two things together, sort of the very simplest um, assembly kinds of industries that China uh, engages in will have to move elsewhere. And we're seeing this already happen to other countries in, 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 um, in East and Southeast Asia, Cambodia and so forth, and, and certainly before that Vietnam. Uh, but there, there is, an, there is a, uh, an opportunity for Sub-Saharan African countries, if we can utilize that space, to actually have some of these industries come to Africa too. So there is, there is, a, there is a big advantage. In terms of policy space, I'm not quite sure if you meant that the the uh, room for African government's policy space is constrained by external conditionality and things like that. I'm, I'm, my general view is that, that I don't view that external constraint in, in, in most cases to be that binding. It's more the ability of governments uh, to exploit the space that already uh, there is. Now, maybe at some point we hit those constraints, but I don't necessarily see them as being the primary constraint. Um, somebody asked about ex extreme exploitation of labor power, to what extent that's the, uh, the key or crucial part of the element of uh, um, uh, countries that have been successful. Uh, you know, I, I'm not quite sure. I mean, I think, you know, I'll take a very narrow economist take on this. Um, if we sort of take as an indicator um, of uh, labor's well-being, the real purchasing power of their earnings, in other words, real wages. 
Um, I would say, based on some work that I've done, that about 80% of that is overall labor productivity, and about 20% of that is determined by institutional considerations. In other words, you know, are the unions allowed? Is there a democracy? How much bargaining power has workers? Right? Keep those, you know, sort of uh, proportions in mind. 80% is labor productivity. 20% uh, is, you know, bargaining. 20% yeah? can be a whole lot. But let's not keep, you know, forget, lose sight of the 80 percent. Uh, that ultimately, uh, um, what's going to matter is whether your labor productivity is increasing, and that's what happens when you take a farmer off the field and put him in a man manufacturing plant. Labor productivity increases, um, and that's where um, their 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 um, their ability, their purchasing power increases as well. I don't want to, you know, diminish or belittle by any ways, uh, sort of, you know, unequal power relationships, you know, the, you know. The, uh, the, the, um, uh, the kind of working conditions that are often um, you know, um, uh, highly inadequate and so forth. Uh, but less, I, would, I would just urge that we put those in, in the, into the right kind of context and not, not, not um, overlook the, the very important role of the kind of things that economists focus on, which is how you get uh, labor productivity of these people up. Uh, post-communist countries, well, it's a very sort of, you know, mixed picture. I think some post-communist countries are doing very, obviously, you know, they had a very, they had a very, they had a lousy decade, um, in, you know, immediately after the transition, and many of them have had a much better decade since then. I think sort of going forward, some of them are actually going to grow quite rapidly. And I do think that, that the opportunity that many post-communist countries, those that are in, in the immediate periphery of the European Union, had to buy into European institutions, whatever we may think of them now in the context of the Eurozone crisis, the opportunity they had to essentially practically overnight transform their institutions and make them look more like those of Western Europe because of this promised land of European Union membership, uh, that that actually has been a good thing and has been a very strong, um, uh, 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 pro, you know, um, uh, stimulator of economic growth. I think I would point to Poland as a country that has benefited significantly from that, um, to some extent the Baltic countries as well. Uh, let me combine the question on, 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 on India and, and, and services. Um, now, India is, is interesting because uh, sort of the standard story with India is precisely that its, it's, that its growth is based on, on moving into uh, modern tradable services. Now, the problem with that um, is that these modern tradable services are highly skilled. They're highly skilled not just for India. They're highly skilled in the UK. They're highly skilled everywhere. Now, when you are in the UK, it's okay because most of your labor force is relatively skilled, but what India needs to do is generate the kind of jobs for the workforce that it has, not the workforce that it will have 50 years from now. It, it kind of, and, and those jobs aren't going to come from information technology industries, from software industries, from uh, call centers. Uh, in, historically, in most cases, that has come basically from basic standard manufacturing where uh, you don't need much more than basic literacy uh, skills to get a job. So that's the key thing about manufacturing, is that it's a relatively easy way to get people into more productive jobs without necessarily telling them you first have to get a university degree first. Um, and I think that's the key with, with manufacturing. That's why it doesn't, you know, it's not a big deal for UK to have a services economy because it already has a skilled workforce. 
Take an economy like Hong Kong, which has experienced significant amount of deindustrialization in the last 10, 20 years, but all for the good, because you know they educated all their workforce in the meantime, and everybody is now in service industries, most of them tradable service industries, but they can fully employ all their workforce, and they don't need the manufacturing anymore uh, to, uh, to, to employ relatively uh, low-skilled workers. Uh, finally, on, on, on subsidies, now it, it's true that if a country is subsidizing its activity, its, 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 um, uh, its, um, uh, its industries, then you know, it has some implications for other countries. Now, how you evaluate those implications you know, matters. Uh, and it's not, to me, quite clear that it's always a negative implication. If you look at it from a global welfare standpoint, global efficiency standpoint, right, take my basic framework. What does my basic framework say? It says that rich countries have already solved their institutional and market failure problems, okay, to first order of approximation, certainly relative to the poor countries. Poor countries haven't. So in poor countries, these modern manufacturing industries are being underprovided from the standpoint of the global efficiency. And therefore, from a global efficiency standpoint, it is appropriate for developing countries to subsidize these industries, and it will be appropriate for rich countries, other countries where don't face these same problems, to be importing these goods. Um, so from an efficiency standpoint, you know, the, the, the approach that the US administration took until recently, until China, was exactly the right thing. We'll just import the stuff, thank you very much. Um, now, of course, when China subsidizes its goods, then other countries at similar levels of income, whether in Latin America and, um, and, 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 and Africa, now, it's, of course, for those countries, there's an adverse effect because they are facing the same kind of structural transformation challenge that China does. And therefore, when China subsidizes exports, it only makes it harder for countries in Latin America and Africa to do the same. But again, there too, I'm not all that sympathetic to that complaint because the problem is that China has done what's good for itself and Africa and Latin America haven't been doing. So it's sort of you know, like, you know, it's a, 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 you know, if you're in a classroom where every kid is lazy, Everybody's going to get sort of the you know a, a decent grade if you're getting you know graded on a curve. Now a hardworking kid joins the class, you know, uh, starts getting much higher grades, and everybody else is getting lower grades now. And then you know, so kids who are getting the lower grades complain about the hardworking kid, um, and and sort of want to kick him out of the class. Well, you know, the answer the answer is to say, you know, first do your own homework and then worry about what China is doing for you. So that's, you know, the sense that that sort of would be what I, what I would say. Just can you pick up the global financial crisis? Because, I mean, I was trying I to avoid glo that. and global indebtedness. <laughs> because your argument tends to treat, you know, the global financial crisis and this very unstable global economic environment as, as somehow exogenous to your argument. Whereas you might call it, some of these tendencies were emergent, as it were, in the rich countries. They leave the rich countries now in a, in a more vulnerable position than for some time. They enforce the surplus countries' position. And this looks like all set for at least a decade. Yes, no, no. I mean, I actually took that scenario that you just laid out as a given. Right. So, you know, that's my maintained hypothesis. Okay. So my argument is running against that background. So what I'm, my presumption is that um, okay. the United States is uh, going to be experiencing a period of very low growth at best, um, that Europe will... Um, <laughs> 
dot 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 that in the best possible circumstance will be um, uh, you know very much inward looking in terms of solving its own you know in the best scenario for Europe the, as I as I in my mind is when that that Europe engages in a process of you know completing its institutional uh, transformation and, and even in that best scenario it'll be Europe will be looking inward and will be you know focused on domestic problems what that means is that you know both regions will be growing you know uh, at, at, at very sort of um, uh, low rates compared to the past. And uh, my concern from the perspective of the developing countries is, is not that the low growth is bad in and of itself, because you know, just because the rich countries are growing at a low rate doesn't mean that the you know, frontier technologies, everything they can adopt, is disappearing. So you can still, the convergence gap is still there. You can still absorb the potential growth still exists there. But the spillover is that you know, if you're growing, you know, less rapidly, unemployment, high public debt imbalances remain a big issue, you're much less likely to condone the kinds of policies in India and China and Brazil that look like they're imposing costs on you, on specific industries or mm -hmm. overall employment levels. And so that's where we're likely to see the conflict coming. Okay. Well, we are running out of time, but let's take just two more questions. I, uh, Danny has to get away. Let's take one question from the back. And this is so random, I really apologize, the lady over there, as the second question. I know there's so many of you who would like to ask more questions, but we do have to finish on time for staffing reasons and all sorts of other things. So I, forgive me for not calling you. Let's take the question here first. Thank you. Um, based on everything you said around political economy, um, I'd like to ask you, an emerging discussion is the introduction of green economy and, and green eco economics. And this concept would have different implications for different countries and regions, I suppose. And it has even been suggested as a development strategy for some developing countries. But I would like to just hear what's your take on this, on the notion and, and on the concept, and, and especially from the development point of view, what would be the implications for developing countries? Thanks. Uh, hi. Um, I would like to hear your opinion about the future growth of China and India because you mentioned that reduction of political and market failure is a very important factor for the growth. And we know that India is a democracy and China not. So um, would you indicate that India will grow further and more sustainable in the future than China? <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, Again, great questions. I don't have a whole lot to say about the green economy and, and, and what that will um, pretend. I mean, I, largely because I, I, I don't have a very good sense of uh, what that's really going to uh, uh, to imply. I guess I have a rule that there's, there's at least one question during every question and answer session to which I should say I don't know, um, and, and, and this one uh, fits. Um, I, you know, I, I think you know there's a hype about that, and I think you know we should be careful about separating the hype from from the reality. That, um, uh, and but I'm not quite sure I'm in a position to to draw the line as to where you know that line ought to be drawn yet. So it's it's an interesting question. I mean, let me you know let me take it as a homework and report back. Um, uh, you know, next time I'm here. India versus China. I mean, uh, I do think that, um, as, as I said in my in my remarks, that 
you know, you know, China has the advantage that uh, it has demonstrated how to get economic transformation going. Uh, India has the advantage that it is it has built a democratic system um, that has proved remarkably resilient and robust uh, despite all the problems um, of that that society has. Not the least is, of course, you know, tremendous amount of of. Uh, uh, ethnic religious tensions and, and, and very low levels of income. And I think that is the great strength of uh, the political system in, in India. And of course, it's easy to complain about how the Indian bureaucracy doesn't work and, and corruption and all of that. But I think still the basic infrastructure for India going forward, I think, is there. Um, the disadvantage for India is, is, of course, that they are facing much greater challenges on the economic transformation front, uh, that they've been successful in, in tradable services, but that needs to broaden uh, into manufacturing and elsewhere, and there, their uh, action is, is happening very slowly, um, and that, that when it ha does happen, it is likely to uh, be regionally highly uneven, uh, because it's, it's most of the relevant um, policies are being taken uh, at the region, at the state level in India, and so you'll see some states moving much further ahead than others, and uh, and, and uh, they'll they'll put some strain certainly on the on the on the political system in in India. But I'm I'm more bullish in that sense on India, given the um, uh, underlying uh, political resilience of the system. And in China, I really worry um, that China doesn't have the institutions of conflict management. Um, to uh, needed to to make it to the next stage of uh, uh, of economic growth, uh, everybody's talking about how China needs to change its model of economic growth, move towards much more of a domestic consumption-based growth, and I, I worry um, about the inability of the Chinese political system uh, to manage that transition. If you have a whole bunch of factories that are geared towards world markets, and then you say, okay, now you have to follow a growth strategy that's going to based on domestic consumption, well, what domestic consumers want, of course they want iPhones and iPads and, and, uh, and, 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 um, and cars, uh, but they also want you know, medical services, they want entertainment, they, have, they want uh, you know, you know, meals out in restaurants, um, and, and so the composition of demand from domestic consumers is going to be different from the composition of world demand. So if you switch try to maintain anything like the same of demand, even the same amount of demand by switching to domestic demand, it entails a huge restructuring of you know, productive activities in China. And that means a lot of people in these export-oriented industrial plants will end up becoming at least temporarily unemployed. Um, and I'm not, I worry that, that, that that's a, a big threat for, um, for, for the Chinese political system, which of course the Chinese leaders realize all too well, which is why they're, 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 they're resisting um, significant and, and, and rapid change uh, in their model of economic growth, a rapid appreciation of the, of the currency. But that's indicative of, I think, some of the deep political problems of the Chinese system. Thank you. Well, I have three quick points to make uh, by way of ending. Um, one, just to remind you that uh, uh, Danny Roderick's new book is at sale at a discount outside. And if you have it already or you want to buy it, please do. And then uh, the stewards will f get you to form a queue to come back through this door. And Danny will be here for a while to sign the copies. The second thing I wanted to say is this lecture is uh, sponsored by 
Global Policy, a new LSE journal. If you haven't seen it, you should. It addresses most of the big global issues of our time. It's got a fantastic website, globalpolicyjournal.com. That's one word, globalpolicyjournal.com. Someone described our website recently as so sexy you ought to have to register you're over 18 to proceed. <laughs> which is quite good for a global policy journal. Every time I say that, actually, I, there's a huge spike in the next hours that uh, follow. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll check you out. And, uh, and then finally, it remains for me to say what a pleasure it is to have uh, Danny Roderick here at the LSE again. I mean, it's always a pleasure. You're here on a Saturday because we read your work. Everyone's here because they're followers of your work, Danny, and thank you so much for coming.